0: You're listening to Duck and Cover.
1: Hey, Duck and Cover listeners. Welcome back. So Sarah and I are really excited about our guest this week. His name is Garrett Graff, and he's a distinguished journalist and historian. He's been the editor-in-chief at Politico Magazine and Washingtonian Magazine to... Great publications in our nation's capital. And he's written quite a few books on some really pressing issues. Most recently, his book on 9 11, The Only Plane in the Sky, is a book on the oral history of 9 11 survivors. He's also written on cybersecurity, the role of the internet in political campaigns, counterterrorism efforts under Robert Mueller. But for our purposes, we're going to dig into his national bestseller, Raven Rock, the story of the US government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die.
2: I had covered national security in Washington for a number of years. Covering national security, you sort of bump up against this secret apparatus that the federal government runs that's called continuity of government. That is all of the secret plans for uh, presidential succession, the things that would happen during and after a nuclear attack and how the country would be transformed in the wake of an unspeakable catastrophe. You know, I had spoken to people who had been evacuated to some of the mountain bunkers around Washington on 9-11. At one point I, for a story, flew with the first helicopter squadron of the Air Force, which is the unit based at Andrews Air Force Base, whose mission on a day-to-day basis is to just be there in case you need to evacuate the nation's leadership from Washington. But what really convinced me to get deeply interested in this was uh, I was working at Washingtonian Magazine, and one of my colleagues came in with a government ID badge that he had found on the floor of a metro subway parking garage uh, that morning on his commute. And it was clearly from a U.S. intelligence officer. We were trying to figure out how to get it back to the person who had lost it. And when I was looking at it, it had on the back these evacuation instructions. One that led uh, out uh, out of Washington to a short-term facility just over the bridge in Arlington. And one that was labeled long-term facility. So I got on Google's Google maps google satellite and started following these driving directions out into virginia then eventually out into west virginia it was this incredible stunning moment where you could see once i followed these driving directions all the way to their conclusion that it led to this road up the side of a mountain and there was a chain link fence and a guard shack and then about 100 yards past the chain link fence the road disappeared into the side of a mountain It was one of these mountain bunkers that uh, was unmarked uh, on the map. I had never heard of it. It made me realize just how extensive these preparations must really be, and that led me to go back and try to research and write the book that ultimately became Raven Rock. Um, Raven Rock is actually another facility that's in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, that is a backup Pentagon. It was built in the Truman administration and is a massive mountain-sized bunker that is effectively a hollowed-out mountain with a freestanding city built inside of it that could support several thousand people for up to a month after a nuclear holocaust. Raven Rock, um, you know, despite being at this point more than 60 years old, is still in operation 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and in many ways, still would be one of the key places that the U.S. government's military leadership would evacuate in the event that something happened to Washington.
1: Wow, that's a, that's a really incredible uh, kind of stroke of, uh, of fortune to get that story lead, I guess, on the Washington, D.C. metro Two interesting things that you bring up in your book. One, that there are quite a lot of these facilities scattered around certainly the Mid-Atlantic, but throughout the United States. And two, that continuity of government is really important. Can you give us a little sense of How did planning for nuclear war change ways of thinking about continuity of government? And what exactly did these bunkers kind of look like on the inside?
2: The answer turned out to be a much more interesting one than you might suspect, which is so much of what we now associate with the majestic imperial presidency are really fancy toys designed to help the president launch nuclear weapons from anywhere in the world. Um, When you look at Air Force One, when you look at Marine One, when you look at the armored, you know, lengthy motorcades that the president drives around in, almost all of that is an invention of the Cold War made necessary by the collapse of time and space with the advance of missile technology and nuclear technology. And so the idea of planning for nuclear war in many ways becomes the story of the shaping of the modern presidency. And it it wasn't all that long ago that the presidency didn't really need to be in that frequent communication. Um, you know, 1935, Franklin Delano Roosevelt goes off to dedicate the Hoover Dam. His motorcade gets lost in the Nevada Canyons on its drive back to Las Vegas. And the president just disappeared for the afternoon. No one knew where he was, where he, uh, when he might turn up or, or even really where in a three state radius he might actually uh, appear. You know, you fast forward just a couple of presidencies and all of a sudden you're looking at a communication system that has to be able to reach the president of the United States within a 15 minute window, wherever he is on earth, whether he is in a car, whether he's in a helicopter, whether he is on a ship or a plane, that communications suite needs to be available to him, and he needs to be able to then turn around and reach the Pentagon in order to launch a nuclear missile strike. And that you see this shift from the arrival of Harry Truman up to uh, really the the peak of the Cold War in, in the Kennedy and Johnson years where the government really has to reinvent itself in order to accommodate the requirements of nuclear weapons. You know, Harry Truman, when he took over as vice president in early 1945, the vice president actually didn't get any Secret Service protection when he started. You know, you you as the vice president were able to sort of move around Washington unmolested on a given day Because no one could imagine meeting the vice president uh, in a hurry, Um, you know, as long as you could sort of get the vice president at some point over the course of the day. That was sort of as fast as anyone imagined meeting the vice president by the time. You get into the Johnson administration, though, and the Nixon administration, you're looking at the passage of the 25th Amendment, which creates a modern presidential line of succession that ensures that the presidency could never be vacant in the nuclear age, that there will always be someone ready to step in. And that's everyone who is a part of that is tracked by uh, what is now known as FEMA's central locator service. FEMA being the government's disaster response agency, it's it's actually the one that's in charge of our uh, nuclear planning and our continuity of government planning. And FEMA has an office that tracks everyone in the line of succession you know, day by day, hour by hour to be able to determine in the event of a catastrophe who the next president of the United States is.
1: Now, now FEMA is responsible for civil defense and continuity of government and disaster relief now, but that wasn't always the case, was it?
2: No. Well, so yes and no. And this this is part of where, you know, most people don't really understand how strange any of this history is, is that, we went through these elaborate uh, civil defense exercises in the 1950s and 1960s. I mean, in the Eisenhower years, there were these annual operation alerts, which were national drills at a scale unimaginable to us today. I mean, uh, they were a day nationwide where people would do civil defense drills. You know, The stock market would shut down. The buses in New York City would pull over and people would flee into basements uh, and fallout shelters to test the ability of the country to uh, survive an incoming nuclear attack. And these plans grew incredibly elaborate over the course of the Cold War. You know, those fallout shelters, at one point, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which was in charge of feeding the population, after a nuclear holocaust, um, they they made up 167 million tons of biscuits, effectively uh, known as uh, survival biscuits. You know, Nabisco and other cracker makers made these uh, survival biscuits, and they were stocked in fallout shelters around the country. The National Park Service would have been the agency actually in charge of running refugee camps, um, because the thinking was that the national parks would be unmolested by a nuclear attack. So you would flee out of the city where devastation would be, or would be near complete. And you would set up uh, these refugee camps by the Park Service in places like Yosemite, um, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains. The U.S. Post Office, actually, through the Cold War, was the agency in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still alive in the United States because the post office... Was the agency that best understood where Americans lived. This was, um, you know, this incredible shadow government that existed through most of the Cold War that most Americans never realized at the time and certainly don't realize today. And that this level of planning grew so extensive that, in effect, Uh, FEMA, which is the modern incarnation of what was originally known as the Federal Civil Defense Administration, went through a thousand other names over the course of the Cold War before it settled on FEMA in the Carter years, effectively became the agency responsible for handling natural disasters uh, simply because it was already doing all of the disaster planning for nuclear war. And it turned out we didn't have all that many nuclear wars but we did have a lot of natural disasters. And so beginning in the 1960s and the 1970s, the forerunners of what would become FEMA began to utilize this disaster response planning more regularly on natural disasters. And so in some ways, the, the oddity is that FEMA today, which we know is the agency that shows up after a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, uh, or an earthquake, really it's a vestigial organ that was never used during the cold war that just manifests itself today as the natural disaster agency.
1: Well, so I want to go back to the title of your book, the story of U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. You know, you kind of got it. At one point, it seemed like the U.S. government was planning to try and save everyone. But that clearly changed along the way. Can you tell us what the real turning point was?
2: Yeah, it's a good question and, and an interesting one. Because what you saw end up happening was the Cold War proceeded through a number of different eras as the technology changed. So, you know, we started with atomic bombs being delivered by bomber. So the thinking was that during the, the 1950s, Uh, When that was the primary threat, the U.S. could actually save most of the population. We were dealing with maybe scores, potentially low hundreds of atomic weapons. There would be eight to 10 hours of warning by the time the bombers got here. So there would be time for people to get into shelters, there would be time for people to evacuate cities. The atomic weapons would have been absolutely devastating to the downtown core of a city. uh, But, you know, you're looking at blast radiuses of, let's say, a mile or two, depending on the exact strength of the, the weapon. And so even if a bomb hit Times Square in Manhattan, if you were in Newark or you were in Brooklyn, there's a pretty good chance you would survive. You wouldn't necessarily be in great shape. The buildings that you were in wouldn't necessarily be in great shape, but you would probably be alive. Then you see first the arrival of thermonuclear weapons, uh, hydrogen bombs. Then you see the advance to ICBMs, which cut that warning time from 8 to 10 hours to 15 to 30 minutes, uh, potentially even as, as few as 8 to 11 minutes. Or New York City, or Washington, uh, depending on whether there was a Soviet submarine off the eastern coast. And you see the arrival on those ICBMs of what were known as MIRVs, multiple independent reentry vehicles, and that you know that multiplied the number of weapons atop a single missile. Suddenly, uh, you know, if you were looking at a thousand missiles, you were looking at eight thousand to ten thousand thermonuclear weapons coming in. And so all of a sudden we were facing a level of nuclear catastrophe that was really world ending in a way that it was not at the beginning of the Cold War. And, and we lose sight of that weird moment in history because we really only remember where the Cold War ended up, which was, uh, you know, as this global apocalypse of mutually assured destruction. When really for the first decade of the Cold War, uh, nuclear weapons and atomic war seemed at least to U.S. planners to be a survivable scenario for much of the United States.
1: It's it's a... Uh... It's fascinating that we see this civil defense story largely play out during the Cold War and evolve in response to the technologies of the Cold War. But as you point out in your book, the closest the U.S. government really came to enacting these emergency plans and contingencies was during 9-11. And can you speak to the events of 9-11 in terms of how the government went about uh, enacting these plans and kind of what changed after that?
2: Yeah, as you said, the only time that these plans were really ever put into place during the Cold War, well, actually not even during the Cold War, the only time that these plans have ever been put into place in history was the Tuesday morning, September 2001, when al-Qaeda struck New York and Washington. This was, uh, in some ways, showed... Just how nearly impossible these continuity of government plans really would have been in practice, that none of these plans really worked on 9-11. You saw folks uh, being evacuated out to Mount Weather, which is the presidential bunker in Berryville, Virginia. Uh, Many of the leaders on Capitol Hill were evacuated by helicopter from the lawn of the Capitol out to Mount Weather, Um, You saw folks from the Pentagon after the Pentagon had been hit evacuated from the Pentagon up to Raven Rock in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. The president, of course, was caught on Air Force One. Um, He was down in Sarasota, Florida that day and was basically hopscotched around the country from secure military base to secure military base, waiting for the coast to be clear to return to Washington. And, And in many ways, the president for much of 9-11 actually knew less about what was transpiring to the country below than the average American sitting at home watching CNN. Uh, In that era, Air Force One did not have cable TV. They didn't have satellite TV. And so on Air Force One, they were totally beholden to rabbit ear antennas uh, as they flew over local TV stations. And so, you know, the TV coverage aboard Air Force One would fade in and out as they flew from TV market to TV market. Um, I mean, it's an incredible story to sort of think of how cut off the president of the United States was on the nation's worst day.
1: Yeah, and this was clearly the kind of most sobering moment of this century, but what you bring out uh, Is that every administration, president after president, seems to come to term at one point or another in their presidency that there's no perfect solution to planning a nuclear war. Can you speak to some of those other episodes and, you know, why did they keep trying?
2: Yeah, that becomes one of the interesting subplots of tracing the history of continuity of government is The way that planning for nuclear war actually, at the end of the day, helped avert nuclear war because presidents spent a lot of time during the Cold War going through these very elaborate plans and exercises. Those Operation Alert exercises during the Eisenhower administration, then beginning in the 1960s. There was a, uh, and this still exists today, something known as the Presidential Doomsday Plan, the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, which is a converted 747. It's not Air Force One. Uh, it's not the planes that are normally uh, used as Air Force One. It's a plane that is specially designed to be a bunker and communication suite in the sky. And... During most of the Cold War, presidents would actually fly aboard the doomsday plane early in their presidency and be run through a real exercise to understand what war could actually look like. And it was a very sobering moment for presidents when they do these exercises it's interesting they don't the president never actually plays the president in an exercise because the The point of it is that you don't ever actually want to know how the president would actually react, that there's a strategic advantage to the surprise of how an actual president would react in a nuclear alert. There would always be someone else playing the president in these exercises. And I talked to some of the flight crews from the doomsday plane during the Cold War, and they always said that one of the interesting things was that people would never actually be able to push the button even in in exercise, even knowing that giving that order and pressing that button would actually not launch nuclear weapons. The weight of that moment was so great that most of the people playing president wouldn't actually follow through on the ultimate point of the exercise. That moment and that weight really does help explain why some of the presidents backed away at peak moments of the Cold War. For instance, uh, John F. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. For instance, Ronald Reagan during some particularly tense moments early in his presidency with the Soviet Union, where presidents really said, whoa, like I, I know precisely how out of control this situation could get and don't want to risk walking up to that line. So let's take a step back. Let's calm down. Let's avoid nuclear war if we can.
1: So, you know, during these exercises, the president, so the man or woman playing the president suddenly gets put in control of this, this massive nuclear war machinery, ranging from the doomsday plane, as you mentioned, to kind of these various communication links between bunkers. And in your book, one of the stories you tell is this kind of partnership between, say, corporate America and the United States government to build this machinery. Can you paint us a, a kind of a picture of how that partnership unfolded and who were the players involved?
2: Yeah, this this was really something that played out Largely in secret through the Cold War, even as you saw presidents build up these mountain bunkers, build these facilities, at the peak of the Cold War, there were more than 100 of these bunkers scattered around Washington in what was known as the relocation arc uh, from Pennsylvania down into West Virginia, Maryland, Virginia, and even into North Carolina, as well as bunkers and other facilities scattered around the rest of the country. Um, you know, one of the most famous ones was the NORAD bunker in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs, sort of most famous for the for appearing in the movie War Games uh, with Matthew Broderick. This really whole shadow government grew up around the presidency to help ensure that there would always be someone who was able to step in. And so one of the most amazing and secretive programs was during the Reagan administration, something known as the PS3, the Presidential Successor Support System, where there was this very elaborate line of succession. And, you know, we think of the presidential line of succession for, you know, as the president, the vice president, speaker of the house, president pro tem of the Senate, the secretary of state and on down through the cabinet officials. But most people don't realize that each of those cabinet offices have their own lines of succession as well. And so depending on how devastating the attack is on Washington, you could end up with this incredibly odd set of people raising their hands around the country to tell tell us that they are the next leaders of the United States. I mean, if you look at the highest ranking officials outside of Washington, it's people like the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Texas. It's people like the director of the Department of Energy's Savannah River Operations Center that these people would be who were called upon to leave the United States in the effect of a truly catastrophic attack on Washington. This was a system that most Americans didn't understand during the Cold War and don't understand today. And under the presidential successor support system, that PS3 program for the Reagan years, you had not just those people in the line of succession for the cabinet and the presidency, but there were these pre-selected teams of former government officials. It was people in the Reagan years, like Dick Cheney, who had been Gerald Ford's chief of staff, and Don Rumsfeld, who had been the secretary of defense uh, in the 1970s, these former officials were to be evacuated from their private lives to these mountain bunkers, to these airplanes, uh, these airborne command posts. And so you would have someone like the secretary of agriculture show up in one of these bunkers in Colorado or North Carolina or, or Berryville, Virginia. And waiting for him in the bunker would be this whole team of former government officials who would be his new chief of staff and advisors. So you know, it, it, during the Reagan years, if you were a cabinet official evacuated in nuclear war to one of these mountain bunkers, there's a chance that you would arrive and you would find Dick Cheney or Don Rumsfeld waiting inside the bunker for you to be your new chief of staff.
0: When most people imagine a bomb shelter, they are imagining kind of like the kitschy 50s family thing. But the sorts of bon- bunkers that you write about, Garrett, they're vastly different devices, like apparatus and space. Uh, so I do want to track back and just sort of ask you to kind of Paint a picture of of the extent, you know, you mentioned before that it's a veritable city built into a mountain at Raven Rock, but what would somebody expect to find if they were just delivered there on doomsday? Could you paint us a picture of that?
2: These government bunkers fell into two different categories. Um, There were some, the vast majority of them, in fact, were basically department stores buried underground. You know, 100,000 square foot, 60,000 square foot bunkers just dug into the ground and might have supported, you know, 100 people, say, uh, or a couple hundred people during or after a nuclear attack. But then the government built a small number of much larger facilities. um, The three big ones, the three most famous ones being Raven Rock in Pennsylvania, which was going to be the backup Pentagon, Mount Weather, which is the backup civilian government, the the president's bunker, and then that NORAD bunker in Colorado Springs that was also uh, the headquarters of the U.S. Continental Defense System. These are incredibly large bunkers that are just hollowed out mountains. Go into the mountain and you enter into caverns, really, where there are freestanding buildings. There are small cities built inside three story tall buildings. You know, Raven Rock and Mount Weather and and NORAD. um, You know, there are full size reservoirs inside the mountains. There are cafeterias. There are police departments, there are fire departments, there are, you know, hospitals and medical facilities, there are locomotive-sized generators uh, that could have powered these facilities for a month at a time, totally separated from the rest of the world. These uh, bunkers could have supported a couple of thousand people inside the mountain. Part of what makes them such odd beasts is that they do operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, you know, you, you can't count on a president being able to escape uh, Washington. You know, you need to be able to have people staffing these facilities to begin with in case there's no warning or a very short warning. On a day-to-day basis, these are just In some ways routine government office buildings you know there are parking lots outside where people drive up and then take a shuttle bus down into the heart of the mountain and if you go into norad for instance that you get all the way into the heart of the mountain you get to the employee cafeteria and one of the food options is a subway fast food restaurant um you know buried in the heart of the mountain there's a subway selling $5 footlongs for the employees who work there on a daily basis. And so, you know, you can imagine the Christopher Guest version of the movie about the nuclear apocalypse, focusing in on the subway fast food worker who happens to be having the day shift at the time of nuclear war and just continues making subway sandwiches uh, right through the end of the world.
1: I can't wow. imagine having a security clearance to make a sandwich.
2: And that's sort of the, you know the the oddity of it is like you know there's a whole staff of subway fast food workers with top secret security clearances in order for them to be able to go into NORAD and and make
0: sandwiches. Well, and and that raises another question for me at least. That's you know these are these are big facilities with large staffs and you know, they're presumably fairly close by to communities. I mean, maybe not really close into downtowns, but do you get the sense that local residents have any conception of, you know, what's hiding in that mountain over there? Uh, yes. Uh, and, and actually often a quite good idea of it. And in some ways, part of what makes this story so interesting
2: is understanding just what a different information environment existed during the Cold War. These bunkers are actually big employers in some of these local communities, and they're all but open secrets for the people in those communities. But during the Cold War, that was hard for that information to spread outside of, you know, there was no Wikipedia, there was no internet or Twitter to help spread that information out of these mountain communities. They were very protective of their secrets. And many people, when I was talking about this book in and around the communities that actually host Raven Rock, I mean, some of these families have worked in those facilities for three generations now. You know, their grandfathers or great grandfathers might have helped build it. Uh, You know, literally dig the mountains out. You know, their fathers might have staffed it. The, The workforces were mostly male during most of the Cold War. Today, you know, they might still be at, at work um, or the children, their children might be working in these facilities. That was not always true, of course. I mean, some of these secrets were really secret. The Congressional Bunker was a facility in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, that was under the Greenbrier Hotel and Resort, this very famous golf resort in West Virginia that Regularly played host to big conventions. Presidents spoke there. Presidents stayed there. The you know Congress would go on retreats there. Never realizing that actually on the back half of the Greenbrier property uh, there was actually a whole bunker set aside for Congress, and that in the event of nuclear war, Congress would be evacuated into this bunker in the Greenbrier and most of the resort's own staff didn't actually realize that there was a bunker underneath until the Washington Post broke word about it after the end of the Cold War.
0: And you can go visit it now,
2: right? Yes, it, it is now a tourist attraction and a very good one um, if, if you ever get the chance to be out there. It's a great resort um, and the bunker is open for the public. For tours, and, and it's really fascinating. I mean, you can go into these rooms that would have been the backup house, the backup Senate. These were actually part of the Greenbrier's conference facilities during the Cold War, and so you know, people didn't realize when they were out there for their, you know, their dentist's convention that they were actually using some of the same conference rooms that uh, would someday hold uh, the House and the Senate in the event of a nuclear apocalypse.
1: So how did these bunkers uh, talk to each other? how, How do you have a president talking with Congress, talking with cabinet officials if they're kind of spread out all across the country?
2: Yeah, and there was a very elaborate system for doing that. You can imagine sort of communication systems piled upon communication systems to ensure that there was all sorts of redundancies built in to ensure that there was always going to be a way not only for the government to communicate among itself, but also to communicate most importantly to the Navy subs and the missile launchers, the ICBM uh, silos that would have been the nation's last line of defense in the event of a nuclear war.
1: If there's one thing I've taken away from our conversation today, it's that uh, civil defense did change quite a bit over the course of the Cold War and beyond. And while a lot of people may remember Bert the Turtle or Mr. CD or you know, hiding under their, their desks in some sort of nostalgic, silly fashion, at one point it seemed like a like an actual uh, solution to the problem that civil defense could really work in the early 50s. But the nuclear threat is different today and, and perhaps not as threatening as a, a full-scale war with the Soviet Union do you think that civil defense could work today based on what you've uh, what you've done
2: yeah and and actually part of what is very interesting about this is that leaving aside of course that the Soviet Union you know at the end of the cold war still possessed tens of thousands of weapons and so Russia today still has thousands of weapons that it could launch if necessary against the United States. You know, nuclear war with Russia would still look a lot like nuclear war with the Soviet Union. But when you look at the Iranian threat or the North Korean threat, for instance, that really does look a lot more like what nuclear war could have looked like in the early 1950s or the late 1940s, which is something that would be largely survivable for most Americans if they took some basic steps to protect themselves. And so I think actually there is a really good argument for modern civil defense preparedness, in part because Nuclear war would always be terrible, but the tragedy in the modern instance would be how ultimately survivable it would be for most people if there was some basic preparation done.
1: Duck and Cover is funded through the Reinventing Civil Defense Project at the Stevens Institute of Technology, thanks to a generous grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York.
0: The pod's home is Idaho State University. Our audio editor is Dylan Moon, and our web coordinator is Krista White. The pod would also like to thank Idaho State University's History Department, and especially Kathy Bloodgood for all her help.
1: Find us on the web at duckandcoverpod.home.blog and on Twitter at duckandcoverpod or email us at duckandcoverpod at gmail.com.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. See you in the fallout shelter.